Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Pegasus early music. We hope you enjoy. Hello, 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 lovely gentlefolk, and welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Rosanna Moore, and I am joined by the lovely and wonderful co-host, Dr. Blair Kerner today. Hello, Blair. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm very excited about our guest today because I have a personal connection. So who is our guest today? Well, we have the incredible and wonderful lutenist, Deborah Fox, who is part of Pegasus Early Music. Now, Deborah, as a performer, has performed all over the world in a variety of early music ensembles. Whereas Pegasus is a group that, although it's based in Rochester, makes it their aim to bring in some of the most incredible early music performers from around the world. They have a wonderful mission that involves performing, educating, and collaborating, and have been described as being highly unique and always original by the Democrat and Chronicle. So without further ado, I am super, super excited to introduce Deborah Fox today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So to get started with the questions, can you briefly describe the history and mission of Pegasus Early Music? Sure. We started in about 2005 to fill a void of uh, professional early music concerts here in Rochester. And I had no idea what was going to happen when we began. And here we are 16 years later. The idea was several fold. Um, one was to bring in more professional early music, uh, also to educate the public about music and to advocate for our musicians as well by providing professional experiences for them. And it grew kind of out of uh, the idea of a bunch of musicians sitting around together and saying, wouldn't it be great to do that piece with this person mm -hmm. or to program these two pieces together? Typical musician talk. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, there is a way to make that happen. And it was not by forming a set ensemble, but by forming a series where I could bring in uh, different people, depending on what they loved to do and um, what they were good at doing. From there, it just they became sort of the core uh, musicians, and we can bring in whoever we need to. So I know that Pegasus Early Music has a connection to New York State Baroque, mm -hmm. which presents early music concerts in Syracuse and Ithaca, which are, you know, cities not too far away. Could you describe how the two organizations are connected? Sure. NYS Baroque is a venerable organization that is now in its 32nd year of existence. Um, they've really come through thick and thin of an arts organization. And I had played with them over the last 30 years on and off because Ithaca is um, not very far from Rochester. 
And when they were looking for a new artistic director, they came to me and asked if I would be interested in doing it. And I said, well, the only way we can do this is if we combine, collaborate, and conquer. Um, so, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so instead of just doing concerts in Rochester, we share the concert series and our musicians then get to play three concerts, Rochester, Syracuse, and Ithaca over a weekend. So they come together for a week, we rehearse, and then we do the three concerts traveling around. And sometimes that's a challenge as on a day like today when it's snowing like crazy. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> but um you know, up until the pandemic in the seven years that I was uh, involved as director of NYS Baroque, we never had to cancel a concert due to weather. Hmm. So um, we, we were lucky. Uh, so the two organizations have completely separate boards, completely separate budgets, but combined, there are some economies of scale. Um, so it works well, really, for everybody. And that way we can afford to pay our musicians a little bit more. Uh, they get two paychecks for each set. It seems to be working. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Getting double the paycheck is always a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so when prepping for our conversation, in our minds, we kind of classified you as a presenter, mm -hmm. quote unquote, because you're mm -hmm. not a set ensemble, as you said. However, on closer inspection, I think it might be more appropriate to call you a curating organization as you determine not only the themes and the repertoire, but which performers, you said core and probably external as well, would be the best fit for each concert. So could you discuss how you curate each concert from start to finish? I love that word, curate. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Thank you, Blair. You're welcome. <laughs> each concert comes with uh, a spark of an idea. It could be a theme. Oh, let's do a, a concert of composers whose name begins with Z. Or... Yes. <laughs> Please say that there's a bunch of those. I would go to that concert. We did that concert. <laughs> Zappa and Zappa. Ooh, okay. <laughs> and Zelenka. Uh, so, or sometimes it's a place, Venice in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's something like women composers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's... Um, I love this singer and I want to work with her and she can choose any repertoire that she wants mm -hmm, to do. Mm -hmm. And we'll put together the ensemble to go with her. Um, sometimes it's, again, as I said, a bunch of us sitting to, sitting around saying, let's do a concert of whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that happened with the three Viola da Gamba concert that we did a few years ago. That was just, oh, wouldn't that be really fun to do? <laughs> Musicians have to be passionate about what they do and they have to be given some creativity to do it. And I think this kind of um, collaborative approach to programming works well because they get to do the projects they want and I get some really fantastic ideas. So uh, I'm in touch with a lot of the musicians who play with us um, and we're always throwing ideas back and forth. I think that's something that is, I know I've mentioned in previous episodes, but one of the joys of being a smaller ensemble rather than a large symphony orchestra. Symphony orchestras are great, but the artistic director picks everything. It's, it seems so much more satisfying to me to be able to really curate, to use that beautiful <laughs> word again, and pick repertoire that helps to theme programs or theme a season. And I think that's something that we're very lucky to do as sort of smaller ensemble musicians. 
Absolutely. I think flexibility is the key for programming and for so many things. Also, if I ask other people for ideas for repertoire, then I get to learn too. Mm -hmm. And that's half the fun. (laughs) (laughs) Talking of the pandemic, that pesky, pesky little pandemic that's going on right now. Pegasus has continued to provide performances, which is really, really wonderful. A lot of arts organizations have worked out how to do something during the pandemic, but it obviously was a scramble. You have switched to a virtual setting. What types of events have you been doing and what has been the reaction from your audiences to this virtual setting? Is there anything from the virtual world that you will keep when you go back to being in person? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, first of all, I want to say that going virtual is a huge, has been and continues to be a huge learning curve for <laughs> little old me. <laughs> um, they didn't have Zoom in the 17th century. <laughs> so um, what type of events? I wanted to do concerts but I didn't want to piece them together on acapella or other things. I wanted to uh, retain the spontaneity that people have when they're playing alone or with each other that can really happen best live. I'm not saying that it can't happen the other way, but this is what interests me most as a curator. The first half of the year, we had two solo concerts. Perfect. <laughs> we um, we recorded. They Both our musicians happened to live in Rochester, so that was easy. We set up a recording date. We all wore masks. There were four or five of us in the room, and we recorded and then um, edited that. And we did um, a little bit of Zoom interview that we interspersed. So we basically, it was all pre-recorded, but it was a full concert. Um, and so you got to see the musician tuning, just like you would see in um, a real concert or you know, adjusting her chair or something. And then I thought, well, since we're gonna be online anyway, we could do different presentations. And so it was something kind of new to us um, that wasn't live concerts, but that we could do. So um, we had a presentation, for example, of um, about Elizabeth Chaquet de la Guerre. And I was able to cut in some videos of performances and put a lot of great images up on Zoom. And people could would come and hear that live. And we also had a live Zoom of uh, one of our musicians is writing an early music novel. And so he spoke about that and did a reading wow. of that. Um, it's about Bach's oboist, the oboist for J.S. Bach. I want to read that. That sounds <laughs> wonderful. <It's> good. <laughs> So um, so it's kind of fun, again, to think about all the various possibilities, friends of mine who are doing research on things, enabling them to present it in some way. I'm trying to provide some opportunities for my musician friends to, to work. Mm-hmm. It's work to put these together, but um, it's also something that it seems that our audiences are enjoying very much. I've gotten great feedback and, you know, there's the occasional blip. I was uh, in the middle of one of these, uh, my internet suddenly went out uh, presenting. And luckily my uh, wonderful administrator had the script. So she jumped on and um, she read the next couple paragraphs until my 
um, my internet came back on. So, uh, but you know, people I think are very forgiving and flexible. And I think that audiences are really hungry for music. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now they can't have live music, but they can have something that's pre-recorded. Um, and I think they really like it. And I discovered this week that um, some of my audience members actually even like it more because they don't have to leave their houses to go to concerts. And I know- You can watch for- it in your pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our first concert was Paul Odette playing solo lute. Now he is a wonderful performer live. You really feel a terrific energy come from him. But if you're in a church or a mm-hmm. concert hall and you're sitting 15, 20 rows back in a, a squeaky pew and somebody moves, either you lose your sight line of him or you lose the next few notes because of the echo of the creaky pew. So if you're watching at home, you can see him very close up. You can see exactly how his fingers are moving and you don't have any of those distractions. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very intimate in a way. And I was really surprised to discover that. I think audiences, as you say, they're so hungry. And when we can eventually go back to things being in person, this is going to be Renaissance 2.0, which um, I think will be a wonderful thing for the arts in general. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Which brings me to the second part of your question. Mm -hmm. What part of the virtual world will we continue? We are talking about that. And I think it's really clear Um, Now that we actually have an international audience now from being online, we've had uh, viewers from um, 15 different countries um, all over the place. And so I think we will have to figure out some kind of um, virtual component, whether it'll be live streaming or recording and then releasing on our YouTube channel um, or um, interviews beforehand online. I don't know yet. Um, I think we have some time to figure that out. And um, But it, it's interesting. I think the live concert wor- world will have changed quite a bit by the time we get quote, back to it. Mm -hmm. So switching topics a little bit, but still relatively recent events. Over the summer, in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement, you actually put out an announcement in one of your newsletters to your audiences stating that, quote, Pegasus, recognizing that early music was largely written by white male Christian Europeans, needs to do more to promote anti-racism and social justice, end quote. What are some of the steps you're currently taking or planning to take to tackle this issue? Yeah, it's a it's a difficult issue. Classical music is um, white, male, and European for the most part. So one step at a time, and um, well, maybe not one step at a time. Okay, a couple of steps at a time. Mm-hmm. I am really interested in music by women composers, and honestly, in the type of music that I'm interested in, which is um, European baroque music. Um, it's a little more accessible and there were probably, I'm not sure, maybe more women composers than composers of color mm. um, with an exception, which I will get to. And um, 
So I'm very interested in women's women composers of the 16th, 17th, 18th century, and we've done several concerts of music by them. And um, there's, I'm always hearing about more. They're popping up, and um, there are manuscripts that haven't been edited yet in, into modern editions. So um, that takes care of the male part. Now, musicians of color, there's much more research to be done. There were, of course, some composers that we know about. We've looked at um, music of the uh, the other Americas, Latin America and, and South America and the Caribbean. And um, is there some really interesting and wonderful music that we've done um, by um, indigenous um, and composers of, of color in that area. Um, so, but there's more to be done. And I think it's a collaborative effort by all um, musicians and researchers to, to bring this music to light. What we do with what we know about composers, for example, we discovered that um, Handel, George Friedrich Handel held investments in the, uh, I believe it was called the um, oh, East Asia Trading Company, mm -hmm. which um, traded slaves. Yep. So what do we do with that? Yeah. There's a reason I hated the Handel Harp Concerto. I now have another reason to hate it. Just complicated. People it's complicated, are complicated. Yeah. But I think acknowledging it is is a lot of it. Um, of course, um, our little world, let's talk about performers. We can always hire more performers of um, other genders, different genders and colors. Um, and that's really, really important to do. Um, our community, our early music community is very small and it's very diverse. And um, especially when we get back to live performing, that is really one of my aims is to um, even more diversify our um, list of performers, our roster. So a few years ago, you started a program called Pegasus Rising. So speaking of performers, which focuses on up and coming early music performers. So why did you create this program and how does it work? Can I also just jump in and say how much I love the name of this Pegasus Rising? It just sounds like this incredible mystical program and I <laughs> love it. <laughs> well, there's nothing really too mystical about it. Um, first of all, I need to thank uh, Ms. Blair Kerner, uh, who was my intern at the time and mm -hmm. <laughs> really helped to get this program off the ground. I think it was during your year that it mm -hmm. started and you actually wrote a grant and organized a lot lot of the first uh, few concerts. So thank you, Blair. Uh, and look where you are now. <laughs> um, in the same way that we have a responsibility to the world to um, diversify and promote anti-racism, um, we also have a responsibility to educate and um, to advocate for young musicians and to give them a chance to come up in the world of performance. Um, and uh, also selfishly, we need to perpetuate our field. <laughs> so, you know, if we all die out, <laughs> so we need to encourage young performers. And that's that was really the, uh, the idea behind it. And um, how does it work? We 
well, we advertise a little bit and people know about this now. And uh, the performers apply. Usually they have um, an ensemble that they've been working with. Uh, and they really need to have shown a commitment to historical performance practice um, through their education and through the experience that they've had mm -hmm. so far. Um, they make us a proposal of a concert. They send us um, videos or sound files or tapes uh, <laughs> of them. And um, if we accept them, they can do a concert here in Rochester. Um, and actually we've enlarged that now to Ithaca and Syracuse through NYS Baroque. Wonderful. And um, so they get paid a professional fee for doing a concert. For many of them, it's their first professional fee and they are thrilled when they get <laughs> handed a check at the end of their concert. It's really lovely to see. Mm -hmm. um, I love being a part of that. Um, and in the meantime, we mentor them, we help them, um, they sign a contract and we help them with deadlines and how to write a press release and how to put a program together. And I mean, many younger musicians these days are way more savvy than I am about all this, but um, some of them are not. <laughs> some of them need some help with their sentence structure and how to uh, talk to an audience mm -hmm. and how to yes. make sure their program is the right length. Um, so we um, mentor them through all of that. Um, they give a concert or several concerts and which are all free to the public. So in a way it's also audience building. And we try to do these concerts in unusual venues, such That's as awesome. coffee houses or a church that no one thinks of as associated with music or- Did we actually um, get the wine bar? I know you wanted to do the wine bar. Did that actually happen? Um, we did a beer garden. Okay, there you go. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Uh, we did a beer garden during happy hour. It was music of Beethoven. So it was very appropriate because he grew up playing in beer halls. Um, and <laughs> so unusual places. Uh, and I think that attracts a different kind of audience. And hopefully we, I mean, we would like to cultivate a younger audience as well for our regular concerts. So it works to everybody's advantage. I think that's a really wonderful thing. And just talking about, teaching young performers how to write grants speak to an audience all of these things this leads very much into the next question but it often just depends a on the student and also on what their musical background is kind of depends on who mm -hmm. their teacher was whether they dedicated that time to that so Another uh, shout out to the wonderful arts leadership program. Mm. In addition to supporting young performers, you also take an ALP intern each year. What are some of the things that the interns have done for Pegasus Early Music? And what do you look for in an intern to know if they might be a good fit? Well, bravo to ALP because mm -hmm. Pegasus Perhaps. would not be, not be in this position without our ALP interns. Um, they have really helped to move our organization forward. Um, and we've probably had at least a dozen, I would say, by now. Um, and they are so fun. It's so fun for me as an old codger to work with um, these young uh, musicians and, um, and interns. What do we look for? I look for someone who's 
good with people, who's well-organized, who's enthusiastic. It doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who knows about early music. Um, I look for somebody who is able to do a lot of different things because for me, the internship is kind of, I tell them, you're gonna be doing almost everything that I do. So um, it ranges from the, the drudge work such as, um, going through a mailing list and pulling out the duplicate names and making sure it's in alphabetical order and that all the addresses are right, to um, writing a grant, having first crack at a grant, to um, helping to run a concert, to, oh my gosh, Blair, you can help me out here. I mean, pretty much everything uh, <laughs> um, that we do, brainstorming, a lot of brainstorming. Mm -hmm. um, Website development, social media. Legs. Yes. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, I, t I tell them if there's something that you really love to do, let me know and I'll try to throw more of that your way. So it's kind of fun. And some of them... Um, really, really, really have helped move us forward. I'm very grateful to this program. And something else that you always look for is people that can uh, love and handle cats because <laughs> that was a question in the interview because we have to go to her home to work and she has loving, adorable cats. And that honestly was one of the, one of the sale points for me. I was like, I get to play with cats while I work? Okay, totally down. <laughs> that is so true. Yes. So it's not, and I actually do tell people it's not, if you're looking for a professional experience in that you have to put on fancy clothes and go sit in an office um, and wear a headset while you answer the phone, this is not for you. Our office right now is in my house. And um, so we can make tea when we need to, um, but, and we'll be working just as hard, but we have these nice distractions. <laughs> so, um, and that's a certain type. I think some people really want a, a, an office in an office building with an elevator and whatever. Um, <laughs> so, and that's okay. I, I think I had a similar experience for my internships. I just went over to Lauren's house with my laptop and she was like, do you want tea? Here's some tea. Send some emails to people. I'm like, mm -hmm. sure. Great. Right. Yeah. Done. And particularly, I mean, things have kind of moved that way even more through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe we were ahead of our time in, in doing that. Although now it's all virtual. So I don't have an intern in my home and my administrator doesn't come here either. But we work virtually. We're on Zoom all the time with each other. So for the next question, this is something that is very near and dear to my heart, which will become mm. apparent in a second. But you bring in some of the top talent in the early music field in for your concerts, including the Grammy award winning, wonderful Paul Odette. However, many of these performers are also international. I, having just gone through the visa process in the last year for myself, uh, can you talk about some of the logistics that you have to consider and the rigmarole that you have to go through when bringing a musician from outside the US? I have to really want that musician. <laughs> <laughs> There's no lack of talent here in the United States. Let me say that right away. Um, uh, but I'm lucky because I had a really busy and wonderful freelance career um, for many years. I mean, I still do, but um, I'm traveling less now that I have Pegasus. 
Um, and of course, no one's traveling at all right now. But, no. um, <laughs> but so I got to meet all these fabulous people on my travels. And um, I did want to bring them. Um, so people like Elizabeth Walfish, for example, from England, the Baroque violinist, uh, she traveled here quite a bit for concerts and she was at Carmel every summer for, for years and years. Um, so we would, we would get a visa for her. Um, sometimes we could combine with a couple of ensembles to mm -hmm. share the cost of that as well. Um, my friends from Sydney, um, Neil Perez da Costa of Ironwood, the forte pianist, is one of my oldest friends. Um, we met in the 1980s um, as we were both learning to play continuo in England. So uh, we tried to arrange for, for him to come. But, you, you know, we try to piggyback. Oh, they had a conference they were doing in New York. So let's go in on that as well. Um, it's getting a little harder to bring in people and more expensive. Yeah. And luckily we have incredible people here and we are so lucky in Rochester because Paul Odette lives about a mile from me. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> um, but I think the people I bring in are mostly people I've met in my years of work in this field. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, warm community and people do want to come and play. Speaking of playing, and also because you mentioned your freelance career, um, you're both the artistic director of Pegasus and as a lutenist, you often play with the ensemble or curated group as we, we like to put it. How do you balance running the organization when you're also performing? Yeah, so sometimes I need to say to myself, close the computer and go over and practice. Yep. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> yeah. What they don't tell you in music college, most of your career is admin. <laughs> well, also, here's my other secret is to have a great administrator. Hmm. And when we were, when we as an organization were able to afford an administrator, it was amazing for me. I had to learn to delegate, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm getting better at it. And um, that has taken a lot of the burden off. So um, I can practice and I like to play and, you know, let's just be honest. I love 17th century music and I love to play it with these people. And that's why I'm inviting them. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we do have, um, quite a few concerts where I feel more like a presenter because it's mm -hmm. people like my friends who are doing research on um, historical performance practice of Brahms. Mm. I mean, obviously I can't That's play in cool. that concert. So I want to share that with mm. the world. So I try to strike a balance. Do you also have like outside of performance career still? You say you freelance, or do you, did you still freelance before COVID? Yeah, yeah. I actually had quite, quite a busy year. Um, and that's fun to go someplace and just sit back and show up and perform. Yep. As a complete <laughs> side note, what's it like traveling with a lute? <laughs> okay, so the Theorbo. Yep. Oh, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, well, okay, you have a harp. I have a I Theorbo. Turn up, I turn up and there's a harp there most of the time oh. unless it's driving distance. That's nice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if it's driving distance, I drive. Um, if 
there's an instrument there that I can borrow um, that I think is going to be of decent quality, then I tried to borrow it. But um, my Theorbo went back and forth to Australia probably three times. And just for our listeners who don't know what a Theorbo is, could you describe that? Yes, it's a big bass lute of the 17th century. And because it's a bass lute, it has a really long neck and low, very low strings, which because they're pitched so low, have to be very long. So the neck is about six feet long. Um, and I hold it sitting on my lap with the neck sticking up mm-hmm. and hopefully not decapitating the person next to me. So, <laughs> so I'm just imagining you walking through an airport with this massive thing and goodness. Crazy. It's crazy. Um, it's not really fun, but, you know, it's it's my job. So, <laughs> so anyway, the last time I came back from Australia, the Theorbo was um, pretty smashed up. Oh no. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's one of the risks you take. So after that I didn't take any more risks and I started borrowing instruments more. Mm-hmm. Really in the last few years my gigs have been in driving distance. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to Pegasus, uh, this is going to be a different one. We are mainly a focused uh, chamber music podcast, and a lot of the work that you do and you curate is smaller groups and smaller ensembles, even chamber orchestras. But um, you also do a larger concert every two years or so, such as the Monteverdi Vespers a few years ago. And this year, you're prepping for a second summer opera, early music opera, which will be Orfeo. How did Pegasus get interested in creating opera productions and how does the preparation for this differ from your normal season prep? Okay, so the big concerts are still chamber music. Uh, Even though some of them may have a conductor Mm -hmm. or let's say a leader. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of rare that I'll hire somebody who just waves his or her arms (laughs) at us um, because I am deeply committed to chamber music Mm. and to people, musicians collaborating together and reacting uh, with each other and creating music that way. Um, The big projects, we have somebody um, sometimes who does wave an arm or directs from an instrument, the Theorbo, for example, when Paul Odette directs or um, uh, the harpsichord for the operas. So, but even opera is chamber music. And the first operas were really performed literally in chambers. <laughs> and, yep. and, and anybody I hire to be the conductor, to be the leader understands that and lets the music happen uh, as well. Um, and is kind of the coordinator. I mean, when you're doing an opera, you've got people on stage singing who sometimes need to see where the beat is going to be, that that kind of thing. Um, so, um, but at its heart, I really want every project we do still to be chamber music. Preparing for these is just a, a matter of the immensity of the logistics. <laughs> uh, if it's a chamber music concert with five people, that's much easier than a an opera with, um, you know, an orchestra of 12 and a cast of 10 and the costume designers and the um, makeup people and the uh, everything else that happens behind and in front of the stage. (laughs) So it's logistics. And again, 
a great administrator. Mm -hmm. Behind every powerful musician is a very good administrator. (laughs) We can hope for that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So finally, this takes us to our last question. If there were no barriers, what would be a project that you would love to do? I'm going to do it. The project that I would love to do is what we have planned, the opera Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. Wonderful. I'm going to do it. <laughs> I have been wanting to do this piece for a very long time. It is one of my absolute favorite pieces of music. It is universal in its message of um, the power of love and the power of music and a whole lot of other sub-themes as well. Um, and I'm going to do it. We have we are making plans to do it, depending on the pandemic. We had to postpone it from last summer, and we're going to see if we can do it this summer as well. Um, but to me, that is um, a project I would love to do, and and I'm really thrilled that um, the board and our audience and our patrons are all uh, wanting to have it happen as well. So. There are a lot of things like that, but I think Orfeo is really my my bucket piece. That's amazing. That's really wonderful. And it's a piece that has harp in. So yes. I, I I must admit, I am not, I never really learned much about early music uh, on my instrument. I'm definitely more of a contemporary harpist, but I'm, one of my teaching instruments is a triple harp. So <gasps> I need to, I need to learn how to play it because I don't yes. know how to play it. Oh, so <laughs> wonderful. And it's such a great harp solo in that, mm, in that piece. Absolutely. So, oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. I'm inspired. I want to either watch okay. the concerts online or come and see them in person absolutely. and then pick, pick your harpist's brains as to yes. how to play a triple harp. <laughs> I can put you in touch with her. Just before we finish up, uh, obviously, all of your social medias, your website, everything like that will be down in the show notes. But do you have anything else that you would like to shout out uh, before we end the episode? Our website is pegasusearlymusic.org. And all of our events and uh, videos are on there. So um, I would like to shout that out. And I would like to shout out to the incredible musicians who really make Pegasus what it is, who work so hard and have such wonderful values of um, collaboration and great musical skills and intuition um, and are such wonderful people. And uh, that's what it takes to run any organization and to really make music.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Bertali and Stefani and performed by Pegasus Early Music. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.